Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, Relationship Goals. People often look at happy images of marriages on social media and say, I want that, but they don't really know what that is. The real secret to a great marriage goes far deeper than just a hashtag. In this four-part series, we'll define four goals that will enable couples to keep their focus on the right path for their marriage. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Good morning. It's good to see everybody. We want to welcome you here in our Granby campus and on our online campus. We're excited that we are wrapping up this series on relationship goals, and we're excited about everything that we've covered. And let me just remind you, while we're specifically talking about marriage, what we want everybody to understand is that this is important for us wherever we are in in relationship to our marital status. You don't have to be married to be single. There's things you can learn here. And Today, as we go through this, you'll even understand that regardless of whether your spouse is a follower of Jesus or not, Scripture speaks to us about how we're supposed to live in relationships in the body of Christ, but also in marriage. Just to remind you, we started this series off, we looked at what does it mean to be Christ-centered in our relationship, then we looked at what it means to be focused on unity in our relationship. Last week, we talked about being temptation busting, and today we're going to look at this whole idea of covenant keeping. So I know in the world that we live in right now, there's been this all kinds of interest in uh, British royalty. You may have been uh, fans of the Crown series. I hear uh, season four is coming up this fall. Uh, Today, I I want to share a story about one of the monarchs that came before Queen Elizabeth. So let me begin. Uh, Victoria's father died when she was only one. Raised in a single-parent household, Victoria didn't have a, a model of marriage to follow. Her relationship with her mom was strained at times, and they were completely estranged as she grew older. Tossed here and there from different places and to different people, Victoria grew up in a contradictory world that provided little direction and very little consistency. At the age of 18, Victoria faced new responsibilities. She was crowned Queen of England, something that few people ever expected since she was not the first in line for the throne. However, the two men before her died and she found herself receiving a title at a time where in Britain that meant precious little. You see, the English monarchy was in question. The English monarchy carried no real influence at the time, and it sat precariously on a line between honor and contempt. This was the early 1800s, and though Britain was one of the wealthiest and most powerful nations, it was a challenging time for the monarchy and a challenging time to be a teenager crowned queen. Just a few years into her reign, Victoria who was a devout follower of Jesus, married a man who would help change the face of the monarchy for good. His name was Albert, and funny enough, she proposed to him. You see, since she was queen, he was not allowed to propose to her. They married, and when you read her diary and other accounts of her life, they reveal that Queen Victoria and Prince Albert were deeply in love from the very beginning. 
Later on, she wrote this about him. Without him, everything loses its interest. Their marriage stayed strong and lasted until Albert's untimely death in his early 40s. Yet even though it was short, what their marriage produced was nothing short of remarkable. It not only strengthened Victoria's rule as Albert became his wife's chief advisor and promoter, but it also expanded the dominion and rule of their nation throughout the rest of the continent. And they raised a whole bunch of children who followed in their footsteps. Now, German by birth, Prince Albert was considered by some to be an invading foreigner, a British interloper by most. Yet he became a respected leader in the nation as he honored Victoria's position and strength while seeking the good of her career. And the nation, through his influence in political and domestic issues, found strength and peace. The view of the monarchy under Queen Victoria completely changed by the end of her reign, and it came to be known as a powerful tool for the good of the whole nation. But it's what happened after their marriage ended that really impresses us. Most of all about the love and the strength of their covenant union for one another. Following Albert's untimely death, the queen showed him the greatest honor that she could in her mind. Though she was still quite young when she was widowed and she could have had a royal suitor from anywhere else in the world... She chose to remain in mourning over the loss of the love of her life for the rest of her life. For four decades, Queen Victoria every day clothed herself in black, staying true to the memory of her marriage even after death and he and had parted them. Now, Many people thought that her grief was excessive. Victoria's love for Albert demanded none less in her mind. You see, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert shared the fruit of happiness in their marriage. Despite the obvious challenges of a large family, despite the pressures of duty and office that they carried, and also despite the certain gender sensitivities because of her superior royal role, they all did what they did successfully, carrying out the mission of the monarchy, expanding its dominion and its influence upon the world. Pastor Craig Groeschel points out that in the world today, people come at marriage from one of three approaches. The first approach he calls is the casual approach. You know, some people take this casual approach to marriage where they actually see marriage really only as a matter, of, a matter of convenience. In this approach, marriage is really just seen as a piece of paper. This philosophy is, goes along these lines. As long as it makes each person happy, then they're in it. But when it doesn't make them happy anymore, they're out. That's the casual approach. The next approach is the contractual approach to marriage. The, the contractual approach sees marriage as a contract. Uh, marriage is a legal contract making sure that each person's rights and each person's responsibilities are granted and given. Now, the, the essence of a contract is built upon a shaky foundation. It's built upon a foundation of mistrust. In other words, I'm going to make sure my rights are taken care of because I'm not trusting you to do that for me. So that's the contractual approach. 
The final approach is the covenantal approach. The covenantal approach sees marriage as a holy covenant established by God. This covenant is based on an unconditional mutual commitment to each other sacrificially for the rest of life. Now, for followers of Jesus Christ, uh, the Bible makes it clear that marriage is a covenant. And in fact, it's a covenant not just between two people, but it's also a covenant between two people and between God. So this morning, we're going to look at a working definition of what a covenant is. In the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it says this, that a covenant is a formal, solemn, binding agreement. Now, from a Christian perspective, it goes a little deeper as we look into Scripture. A covenant is a promise between two or more parties to perform certain actions. The concept of covenant is significant in the Bible. Covenant was a well-known concept in the ancient world and also in Scripture. And covenants were made between two equal parties, but oftentimes between two unequal parties, between a king and a queen and their subjects. The monarch would promise certain protections and the subject would promise loyalty back to their king or queen. A covenant may be conditional or it may be unconditional, but it's in the Bible where we see so much about covenants between God and his followers. If we go back to the book of Genesis, after the great flood, God made a covenant with Noah to never flood the earth again. And as a sign of this covenant, he gave them the rainbow. He gives us the rainbow to be able to remember that God has made that promise to us. And that's important for us to understand that these promises we see in Scripture, though they were made thousands of years ago, we understand that they are promises that carry on for God's people today. The next covenant we see in Scripture is the covenant that God made between Abraham and Sarah, where God promised this childless couple in their old age that they would have a child and this would be the beginning of making their offspring an offspring of nations. In other words, that there would be thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of offspring and God kept that covenant. God made a covenant to Israel about the promised land that he would take them there and he kept that promise. God made a covenant to David that his descendant would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And we know that foreshadows Jesus Christ, the son of David. And finally, through the prophet Isaiah, we see the last covenant that God makes in the Old Testament, but it, it foreshadows the most important covenant that is in the New Testament. The prophet Jeremiah was told by God about a new covenant, and this is what we read. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. It was a covenant promise that God made to an unfaithful Israel about the covenant that he was going to make. And we know that that covenant was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So let's just talk about that, that covenant we see in the New Testament. 
We see that covenant and we remember that covenant every time as followers of Jesus, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Whenever we take communion or the Eucharist, whatever you're used to calling it, we say these words that Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed and they broke that bread and they ate it together and they shared that common cup of wine. These are the words that Jesus said. They're recorded by the Apostle Paul. This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. So whenever followers of Jesus celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we eat the bread and we take the cup, we're remembering this new covenant that God made that was foreshadowed through the prophet Jeremiah that God would be our God and we would be his people and that he would seal that for us in the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed so that we could receive forgiveness and be in a relationship with God forever. This gives us a perspective on the importance of covenants for God and for followers of Jesus. And this is what we need to remember, that these covenants are given to all of us regardless of our marital status. They're given to us as followers of Jesus Christ so that we can be in a relationship with God now on earth and forever in eternity. But let's look at how covenant came into marriage. Let's see this so we can understand it. In the book of Genesis, we see the institution of marriage first put forth by God. It happens in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve. And God says, as he brings this couple together, that they will leave their mother and their father and they will, the two will become one united together. And then we see in the Gospels, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, Jesus describes marriage quoting this same scripture from Genesis. But he also speaks about it in terms of a covenant between God and the two who are becoming married. This is what he says. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is making clear that this commitment being made involves a commitment with God between the two that are getting married, that they're making a covenant, a binding covenant that is not to be broken. And making that covenant involves making vows, vows to one another and vows to God. Look, when you attend a wedding, uh, if you've attended a wedding recently, you probably have watched a couple exchange wedding vows, a commitment, making promises to one another. If you're married, you did the same thing. Now, when you did that, you may not have thought about it at the time, but, but you were making a covenant to one another. So let's look at what some of those traditional vows look like. Most of those vows start off with a question that sounds something like this. Will you have this person to be your spouse, to live together in the holy bond of marriage? Will you love them, honor them, and care for them under all conditions and circumstances of life, and through the grace of God be faithful to them so long as you both shall live? So that question sets up the vows of this covenant. And here are the vows that many of us 
have heard and said, I do promise and covenant to be your loving and faithful spouse for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, so long as we both shall live. You see, marriage is supposed to be a covenant between each other and God. It's, it's about more than just happiness. It's about more than just sexual fulfillment. It's about more than just relationship fulfillment. I appreciate what pastor and author Dr. Tony Evans writes about marriage. He says, passion matters and happiness is great, but rather than being the purpose in marriage, they are benefits of marriage. Marriage exists to glorify God, to expand God's rule and his reach in the life of that couple and in their circumference of relationships and in the world. It uniquely reflects God's image like nothing else. When you pursue God's purpose as a couple, he writes, then everything else you value in life, such as happiness, love, and satisfaction, will fall into place. So when you honor God by making that marriage covenant to him and keeping that covenant and serving one another in that marriage covenant, God is glorified and the marriage blossoms and blooms. So how do you live out this covenant in marriage? Look, we're going to look at some things that we need to do within our marriage that Scripture tells us how we're supposed to live. But as we're going through this, again, regardless of your marital status, you're going to see practical applications for how we live in relationship with family, with friends, and in the body of Christ. Here's the first thing that we need to know about marriage. A marriage covenant needs mutual submission. It needs mutual submission. Ephesians 5, 21 through 33 is an important section about, in Scripture about marriage. I, I want to encourage you to read it. But here's the most important verse in that section. It's the very first verse. It's verse 21, and it says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. So that couple that's making a commitment to one another are supposed to submit to one another. Why? Because of their vertical relationship with God. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. When a couple makes a marriage covenant to one another, they're submitting to one another. They're giving their lives to each other. If you go on and read the rest of Ephesians 5 about marriage, you'll see that there are some specific ways that husbands should love and care for their wives and that wives should love and care for their husbands. But it all starts on the foundation of mutual submission, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Now let me jump back to those wedding vows that I said just a moment ago. Did you notice that each person in the, what each person in the marriage is asked? They're asked what they will do for the person they're marrying. Not what the person will do for them. They're asked what they will do for their spouse. That question offers nothing to the one being asked to love, to honor, and to care for the other under all conditions and circumstances of life. And then did you... Remember the vows? Did you notice that there were no qualifiers or disclaimers to those vows? Those vows said that you will love them for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, 
as long as you both shall live. They're basically saying, will you love them forever no matter what happens until one of you dies? The marriage vows made in marriage are about mutual submission to one another. Now, while Scripture does designate some roles in marriage, this overarching idea of mutual submission to one another cannot be overlooked because as far as Ephesians 5 is concerned, mutual submission is the context, is the foundation upon which marriage is built and originates. Why? Because when these roles are founded on mutual submission, they are able to cultivate the right kind of relationship. It's less of a hierarchy and more of a partnership. And that's what we read elsewhere in Scripture, like in 1 Peter chapter 3. The covenant of marriage is a partnership built on mutual submission to one another. Here's the next thing we learn from Scripture about the marriage covenant. A marriage covenant is selfless. It's selfless. When a couple makes their marriage vows, they're saying they will serve each other. In the marriage covenant, we serve each other in every area of our lives. Eugene Patterson was a pastor and an author, and he created a translation of the Bible called The Message. You may be familiar with it, but let me tell you what drove him to make that translation. He wanted to see people captured and engaged by Scripture in a way that he was when he translated it from the original languages. He got so engaged and so excited about it, he wanted others to feel that and experience that. So he translated the whole Bible, and it's called The Message. But I want to read to you one verse that he translates from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is a passage about marriage, and he says this, Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. It's this idea that, that all of marriage, every part of our relationship is a commitment to serve one another, to, to build one another up, to encourage one another, to do the things that help the other person become who they are supposed to be in Christ. So being selfless and serving one another in all of those areas is a vital part of a marriage covenant and commitment. It's not a what's in it for me type of relationship. It's a how can I serve you kind of relationship. And it's a promise to love and to serve. The next thing we see in Scripture about the marriage covenant is that it is sacrificial. For any marriage to work, it involves sacrifice. On any given week, spouses are going to have to make compromises, sacrifices, to support one another's work needs, to take care of children, to deal with unexpected things or some other issue that necessitates a change of plans. Someone may have to sacrifice their plans for the other one. Sometimes you're going to have to sacrifice doing things that you did once you were, when you were single because things change now that you're married. Maybe you're going to have to sacrifice so your spouse can uh, finish school. Maybe you're going to have to sacrifice because of the, the time required for one's job versus another. Or maybe you have to sacrifice because you work opposite work schedules. 
I think about that over our uh, 35, 34 years of marriage, Cynthia and I have had to make sacrifices for one another. When we got married, I still had a year of seminary left. Cynthia was in Maryland, I was in Pennsylvania, and that, this was before there was anything called online school. So I had to physically be there. So she gave up her dream job and moved to Pennsylvania. Uh, it, was, it was tough for her to find a job, but she did that willingly. She sacrificed that for me. When children came along, it became clear that we wanted to maximize our time with our kids and caring for them. Cynthia was a teacher, and teachers don't have flexible schedules, but I had a flexible schedule. I had a preference of the time that I wanted to work, but because we wanted to maximize our time with the kids, I sacrificed my preferred schedule so we could care for the kids as much as we could with ourselves. Why do we do that? Because... Marriage calls us to be sacrificial. Now, I mentioned earlier in Ephesians 5, Paul goes into the different roles for husbands and wives in marriage, but they're all based on mutual submission to one another. In one verse, Paul tells husbands how to love their wives, and this is what he says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see the sacrificial calling that husbands are supposed to give themselves up for their wives like Jesus gave himself up for the church. But, but if you take that back to verse 21 and this whole idea of mutual submission, really what it's calling for is both parties in a marriage, husband and wife, to give themselves up for one another like Christ gave himself up for the church. And this is echoed in other places particularly in the words of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says this, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And of all people, our spouse should be the one friend that we would lay our lives down for. But, but really, thinking this through, as followers of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to lay our lives down for others. We're supposed to live sacrificially for others so that we can love them like God loves, so that we can help point them to Jesus, so we can be followers of Jesus, Christians. The origin of that word basically means little Christ, to live ourselves like we're his followers, imitating his life. So the covenant of marriage is sacrificial. Scripture also tells us this, that a marriage covenant is unconditional. It's unconditional. There is no vow in marriage that says, I will love you only if you do X, Y, and Z for me. The covenant of marriage is an unconditional promise. And in Scripture, we see this in a very encouraging way. The Apostle Paul has a special message for Christians who are married to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. But it applies to all of us to understand how we're supposed to live in relationship to one another. Again, in 1 Corinthians 7, this is what we read. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord... If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer he is, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Paul makes it clear that just because your spouse doesn't believe in Jesus, you should not divorce them. 
Paul's message is to love them for who they are and for where they are and love them in ways that Scripture instructs us to love our spouse. There are at least two biblical reasons why we should do this. First, because we live in marriage the way Scripture tells us to, we will bless our spouse, even if they're not a believer, by loving them the way Scripture calls them to do. And in doing so, that may help them grow closer to coming to faith in Jesus. And second, the Bible tells us that we are supposed to accept one another in the way that Christ accepted us. And how did Christ accept us? Christ accepted us when we were of no use to him, Christ accepted us. Scripture says that when we were still enemies of God, Christ accepted us just as we are. And it's in coming to know him and believe in him and follow his teaching that we, that transformation happens in us as we're filled with the Holy Spirit. But he accepted us just as we are. And that's how we have to accept one another. So in marriage... We live out our covenant with one another unconditionally, regardless of where our other spouse is. Here's the final thing that Scripture tells us about the marriage covenant. It says the marriage covenant is honorable. It's honorable. We're supposed to honor one another. Honor in marriage is a big deal. If you don't honor your spouse, it will slowly tear away at your marriage covenant and at your marriage commitment. When I talk about honoring your spouse, I mean when he or she is present and also when he or she is not present. Look, when you're out with your friends, don't complain about your spouse. Don't dishonor your spouse that way. Let me tell you why. The issue you have with your spouse is between you and your spouse. And it needs to be worked out with him or her. Telling others about your spouse will actually begin to undermine your commitment and your love for your spouse and your relationship with your spouse. And it will undermine your friend's relationship with your spouse. And basically, it's gossip. Because you're talking about somebody behind their back. And scripture tells us very clearly that we're not supposed to gossip. So we're supposed to honor our spouse. In fact, the book of Hebrews says this, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept clear, kept pure. Now, that's a, that's a one-two punch. Let me explain it to you. First, Christ followers should honor all marriages, especially their own. We need to build up other marriages and honor them and respect them. First Peter talks specifically about how husbands are supposed to honor their wives. Ephesians talks about how Wives are supposed to respect their husbands. It's all about honoring each other. How we talk about our spouse and our marriage is important because it actually begins to inform how we treat our spouse. Here's the second punch in that scripture. And it's about honoring marriage by keeping the marriage sexually pure. Honoring that commitment now, in today's culture, I have to say this because we're not just talking about physical affairs. We're talking about virtual affairs, too. So we have to honor the marriage bed. 
While I've spoken specifically about marriage and all these qualities, really what I want you to see is that all of these things really apply to how we live in relationship with other people and how Christians live with one another. We need to be selfless. We need to be sacrificial. We need to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. We need to honor one another. And we need to do this all without condition. You know, as the body of Christ, as, as follow, fellow believers, we're supposed to build up one another, encourage one another. And all of these attributes help us do that. So, so as I bring this message to a close today, I want to do two things. I want to pray for your relationships, and I want to pray for your marriages, and I want to give you a challenge. And I'm going to start with the challenge first. If you're married... This next week, what I want to encourage you to do is go back and look at your marriage vows. If you don't have a copy of them, if you can't remember what they are, email me. I will send you a copy, the one that I just read from. I want you to spend some time personally, individually, reflecting on how you are holding up your vows, not your spouse, how you are holding up your vows. And then set a time to have a date with your spouse. Get something to eat, spend some time together, and then talk over your reflections about your vows. Talk about, if you need to, ask for forgiveness for something you haven't done well, then do that. But then pledge to one another to keep those vows and, and to refocus on them in your marriage. Now, if you're not married, here's my challenge to you. All of those attributes that we've looked at today about uh, covenants being uh, unconditional, about honoring one another, about being built on mutual submission, about being sacrificial, all of those things are how we need to work with one another in the body of Christ and also with people in our community. Spend some time reflecting over those. If you can't remember them all, if you didn't write them down, you may know this by now. If you don't, every week the outline for this sermon is on our Bible app, and you can download it and save it there. And so I want to encourage you to do, do that so you can reflect on all of these things in your relationships with one another. So as I said, I want to pray for you, and I want to honestly give anybody a, a, an opportunity to profess faith in Christ who's never done that, whether you're joining us online or here in the building, because what I'm talking about today is really something that's important for followers of Jesus, and if you've never told him that you believe in him and entered into that covenant of faith with him, you can do that today. So I'm going to start with a prayer for anybody who wants to pray that way, and then I'm going to pray for our relationships and for our marriages. So let's bow our heads. Father, as we come into this place, we recognize that you are a covenant-making, promise-keeping God, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you made a promise to be our God and for us to be your people, and you kept that through your son, Jesus Christ, who came and fulfilled the new covenant. And you offer salvation to anyone who professes faith in you. And so if there's someone who has never professed faith in Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity to do so today. I'm going to give you some phrases that you can put in your own words and pray back to God. So here they go. Very simply, just pray these silently. Dear God, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus died to forgive my sins. 
And I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. And today I declare that I want to follow him all the days of my life. Now I'm going to pray for all of us. Father, we thank you, as I said earlier, that you are a covenant-keeping God. We thank you for the new covenant that you've offered us salvation and your presence through the Spirit while we live on this earth and in eternity. And Lord, each and every one of us wants to be covenant-keeping sons and daughters of you. So I pray, Lord, for each and every one of us that we will lean into the covenants that we make with you and with the body of Christ and with our spouses. I pray that you would allow us to do the things that build one another up and that encourage one another and exhort one another to deeper faith in you. And I pray, Lord, for marriages specifically, that we will work through the ups and downs of marriage, that we will continue to return to our covenant vows, and we will seek to strengthen them each and every day as we seek to be your followers. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.